Hello, this is Rob Behrens here welcoming you to a great edition of Radio Ombudsman. My guest today is Ian Tremhoe. Thank you very much for coming in. Hi Rob, good, good to be here. Uh, we're very lucky to, to have Ian. He's a distinguished public servant with a remarkable record of leading a number of uh, important agencies. He's been Chief Executive of the Care Quality Commission since August 2018. And previously, he was chief executive of NHS Blood and Transplant. And before that, he had a range of jobs, including chief operating officer at the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, and roles in local government, I think, uh, the Royal Borough of Windsor and Maidenhead, and strategic director for resources at Buckinghamshire County Council. You've served in the Royal Hong Kong Police Service, I wonder whether it was as exciting then as it is now. But you then moved to the Surrey Police before going into the commercial sector. So a formidable range of experience. You have a degree in geology from Goldsmiths and an MBA from Durham University. So uh, that's very impressive and uh, we'll ask you a bit more about it. But could you start off, as we always do, by telling us a a bit about where you were born, your background, and what values you you were brought up with. Okay, thanks, Rob. Yes, um, I, 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 I was born and brought up uh, in on the Wirral, uh, in Merseyside, and I think I'd always had. I was always brought up, I suppose, to see things in a very straightforward way. Uh, my parents were very good at instilling um, in me and my three brothers and sisters the, the values of, of, of honesty and, and fairness. And as I, I sort of progressed through school and, and on to university, I think those those values I think were something that was stood me in, in great in great stead. And I'd always been thinking about joining either the military or the police service. And so when I left university, I went out to Hong Kong. And again, I think this was this was all about me playing into my kind of core values or, or of wanting to do something decent for for the for, for the public for the public um, I felt I'd had a good upbringing I think you know, I had had a really really decent upbringing um, and I felt I wanted to to make a contribution to society in the broader sense but obviously at 21 years of age you don't really know what that is so I went off to Hong Kong to do something kind of what I thought was exciting and it, and it was whether it was as exciting then as it is now is a, is a, is a, whole, <laughs> other a whole other debate but um, you know I, I I saw the importance of of that honesty and fairness thing but I also saw that as a police officer you, you get the privilege of, of dipping into people's lives and seeing often the dark underbelly of, of what's going on and, and, and quite often you see things which are not always as they may first appear so again I think it was really it was a really useful experience on, on my part to be able to to understand um, how people think uh, some of the challenges that people lead and the really difficult lives that people lead um, and certainly in, in Surrey in particular I what I saw was um, as a police officer, you would turn up at someone's house at two o'clock in the morning, and you'd see a th see an event happening. But that event was driven by a series of other events, where the local council perhaps hadn't been able to help someone, where social services weren't where, where you wanted them to be, or, <clears throat> or even health 
you know, a long-term health condition, particularly a mental health condition, uh, was just not being, was not, the person was not being looked after. So it gave me that sense of, of wanting to see public services in the broader sense. So that's really what set me off on the rest of my career around trying to work out how to, you know, what contribution I could make to gluing together public services um, in a way that, that made sense for people's real lives. Would, would you say your career since the, since the time you left the police has been planned? Oh God, no, uh, no. I, I don't think. I don't think so. I think. I think what I've tended to do is to sort of say, well, what's important to me? What are the things which I I think I can add, where I can add value, versus what are the things I would never consider doing? So, you know, there are there've been times when people have have talked to me about jobs, and I've just thought, yes, but I, I don't think I would. I don't think that 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 job would be consistent with with my values. What I actually want to do. So which is why I've been kind of largely drawn back to these sort of public sector type roles. But I, I think I, you know, my um, my career has been quite opportunistic. There have been things that I've known that I've been interested in, and I've started to pursue them in every one of the jobs that I've done, and that's set me up for for the next step. So I, I think I think to, to a large extent, it's been pretty opportunistic. So you've held leadership roles in lots of different sorts of organisations. We've heard a bit about local government, central government, and arm's length bodies. You've now been at CQC for, for around a year and a half, a bit more. How does this experience compare with your previous leadership roles? I think a lot's the same, a lot's, and a lot's different as you, as you would expect. I think, I think CQC is a, is a large corporate organization. We employ nearly three and a half thousand people. And we have a, a like a complementary workforce of experts by experience and specialist advisors that that number at least another thousand on top of that. So, um, you know, it's, it's a large corporate organisation, and I've uh, you know I've led large corporate organisations before. So with that comes all of the things that you would expect, and and all of the challenges of leading a large corporate organisation. But I think I think that the, the the big difference with CQC is being a regulator. Is that is that sometimes people aren't pleased to see you, and they I, will I know the <laughs> exactly. You will you will know that <laughs> feeling, and I think sometimes you have to you have to have those difficult conversations with other organisations or with individual providers in our case, and sometimes with members of the public where we have to tell them that we can't do what they really want us to do, um, either because we don't have the legal powers or, or or because we don't think it's the right thing to do, and that can be that can be quite difficult, uh, and I think yeah, I often compare what we do as the CQC uh, to what to going to eat in a restaurant where you walk into a restaurant um, you don't sit down and interview the chef you just sit down and eat whatever comes out of the kitchen and you assume, assume it's going to be safe and you're not going to get food poisoning in health and social care you 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 pick a, a health a, a, a provider and you assume that somebody i.e. the CQC has sort of certified that it's going to be okay so the sense for me is that is that a lot of the lot of the positive work that we do that people passively consume isn't ever really ever really seen so I think that's quite an important uh, important difference whereas in most other organizations when you when you're doing work the positive side of things is more frequently seen I think it's much much more difficult to see from when you when you're a regulator how important is it to have a public profile as a the CQC mm. as a regulator I think I think it is important to have a, a public profile because I, I think you know where people do see themselves as having a genuine choice 
I mean, most, most people will kind of register with their local GP and won't perceive themselves to having a choice around their doctor. They, they probably have more of a choice than they realise. And the same, true if, if, the same is true in hospitals. But certainly in social care in particular, I think if you've got a relative that um, is, you're, you're looking to um, place them into, into social care in some way, that's a really difficult emotional experience. And, and certainly we as a family have been through that a few years ago. And I, I think having an organisation that you can trust, whose, whose viewpoint you trust, is, is an important part of that. So at least you can feel that going through this really difficult decision, you're doing it with the best interests of your, of your loved one at heart. And I think the CQC having a, having a public profile is an important part of, of that mix, I think. Mm. Trust is a key issue in public service. It is. It and it's is. about at least about competence and about transparency yeah. and honesty and all those feature in, mm. in what you have to do, mm. I imagine. Oh, very much so. I mean, I think, you know, we, we, we talk to the providers that we regulate, uh, it, it, we talk about, you know, them having a, a duty to be candid with the, with the people that they serve. And sometimes people can find that, that hard. But, you know, our view is that that candor and that transparency means that that they as an institution can learn but I think probably more importantly that that learning is shared across the different sectors because an important part of, part of what we do as CQC is we, we, we protect the public um, in terms of safety and quality of care but we also promote improvement and it's something which people don't often talk very much about but but I think that promoting that openness and transparency in providers helps promote improvement uh, in a really powerful way. The CQC regulates one of the most sensitive and challenging areas in, in British public life. What, what, what does that mean in terms of challenges for your organisation? I think we've got a number of, of, of challenges, I think. I think one of them is to make sure that we can differentiate between the emotional side of of the way health and social care is delivered and the if you like the technical side and, and I and I think there's a there's something about keeping those things in balance but you know we we sometimes find that if we are taking enforcement action against against either a, a care home or, or, or a GP or even a hospital um, we'll actually have people complaining to us about us not knowing what we're doing because they had great care when they went. Therefore, they can't understand why we would be seeking to close down a care home when they had great care. Mm. And so one of the challenges is to make sure that we can recognize that public viewpoint uh, and, and balance it off against that, um, that, that, if you like, more technical viewpoint. And I think, so, so I think that, that's, that's one of the, the challenges. But I, I think there is this sense that that when you work in health and social care, you, you start working in that environment because you care. You know, mm. people's people's core values are, are pretty decent. And then someone like us comes along and says, well, actually, you're not doing a terribly good job. And that can be a really difficult message to get right. So I think messaging that in a way that people take it in the spirit in which it's meant, and then they themselves can then say, right, okay, how, how do we learn? How do we improve? And that's particularly acute, I think, in social care where, you know, we'll, we'll be talking to people who perhaps have spent the last 20 or 30 years building a business. And it might be, you know, just a couple of a couple of partners who are pulling it together, maybe have one location. And there comes a point where we arrive and say, actually, you're not do you're not good enough. Mm -hmm. um, and they they find that very, very difficult personally. So trying to trying to move, trying to get people to move away from that 
know, that that personal side of things and, and look at it a bit more dispassionately is, is is really tough. But I think it's something which is just hard to do. Is it important that the people who work for you have had experience in the area that they regulate? I think generally yes. Um, I think what we tend to do is we we split our organisation into 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 th broadly three areas. One is around primary medical services, which includes dentistry. We inc we have uh, hospitals and we have adult social care. So generally speaking, the people that work in each of those areas have worked in those areas beforehand. Although increasingly, I think the experience we're having with our methodology suggests that people can, with a bit of training, move between areas. And sometimes we put together joint teams. But I think we're increasingly seeing that one of the bigger challenges for the health and social care system generally is, is this notion of systems and how systems come together. And we're finding that when we talk to the public, they're often much less interested in talking about a single institution and much more interested in talking about their ability to access care and how they transit across the health and social care system. So mm -hmm. having inspectors that, that have got some experience of working in regulating GPs and some experience in hospitals and some experience in, in adult social care is going to be increasingly important to us, I think, because I think we're, we're more and more interested in how individual providers are working and collaborating with each other than, than simply operating in a series of silos. It's interesting that your mandate includes both health and adult social care, whereas my mandate doesn't include adult social care, mm. which is a nonsense mm. because the two are so intimately connected. Mm. So we've got a lot to learn from mm. your mandate. Can we just talk a bit about uh, Walton Hall? Mm. You recently published one of the reviews around CQC's actions related to this organization, the Learning Disabilities Facility in the Northeast. And we know that a Panorama investigation uncovered abuse of patients. This review's looked at how CQC handled an internal whistleblower who complained that their concerns about the service were being ignored. This is obviously a very challenging issue for you. Can you tell us a bit about how you've responded to, to that scandal? Mm. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think the first thing to say is that I think we were all devastated and really disappointed with uh, with 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 what happened at Walton Hall and, and how and how the fact that our regulation just didn't catch what was a, a terrible set of events. I think when we look at the the regulatory history, and we, we've that we've actually got two reviews, one of which has just has, was published uh, in January, and the other one will be will be published in the next few months. They do expose the real challenges of visit-based regulation and, and at, the, at its heart our, our regulation involves us looking at intelligence around an individual institution and then physically visiting and seeing what, what's, what's put in front of us and and what we find certainly in in locations uh, particularly close locations around mental health but also learning disability and autism wards which is what Walton Hall was is it's it takes five or ten minutes to get through the door as we walk through we are clearly identified as, as CQC inspectors it would be naive to expect that people are being abused um, what, in front of us uh, and so we then have to then go through a series of, of conversations with, with members of staff and with with patients. I think it's particularly difficult in environments with learning disability and autism patients because some of them are non-verbal and so so getting to the bottom of of what's gone on can be quite can be quite difficult. But I think I think we have learned a number of lessons uh, over the over the last last year in particular 
around making sure that our inspectors are are really well briefed in terms of what they're what they're looking for that all of the learning that we've got is is distilled in in a way that inspectors know what they're looking for and we are certainly i think probably being more and we're looking also at um at the intelligence that that we gather and looking at that probably in a bit in a bit more detail as well i think the the, the challenge that i think we continue to have is that core methodology around visit ba about a visit based methodology is means that it is quite difficult to, to get to the bottom of some of these things and and when we reflect on what panorama did mm -hmm. they had a an undercover reporter in in Walton Hall for a number of months and and that reporter watched what was going on a number of times and and some people have said well why don't you put undercover reporters in undercover inspectors in and and I think we could but I don't think it would have actually exposed Walton Hall what it would have exposed was one individual because as soon as one of our inspectors sees something sees abuse taking place they would have to step in and and stop it yeah. um, because I, I certainly wouldn't want any of my team knowingly allowing abuse to take place whereas I, I think with with journalists they they they're, they're trying to make a program their, their, their starting position is quite different I think but when we get right down to this I think that the thing that we've been saying for a number of years and, and continue to say is these locations are just not fit for purpose for for people with learning disabilities and autism people are spending too long in 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 these services and the lack of community services is meaning that there isn't an alternative place for people to go. So, you know, what we've seen is is patients in these services who, you know, last week were living at home. They, they go into crisis and they go straight into a, a closed environment. And that's a very difficult environment to um, for us to regulate. Yeah. And really what we'd like to see is is a change in commissioning behaviour uh, so that so that the um, so patients, as they as they start to need more and more support, that's available closer to home for them. Uh, I've just come back from a, a working visit to Canada, where some of the ombudsmen there have powers to go into organisations without notice mm. and even without permission. So they, you know, mm. if they're not welcome, they can still go in. Mm. Do you, do you have that power? We do. I mean, I've got a warrant card in my wallet that enables me to to enter any health and social care location and demand demand records in, in essence, uh, and that that's the basis of entry for our our um, our inspection. So, an awful lot of our inspections are are unannounced and 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 you know people and and will be based on intelligence. So. If we get somebody who contacts us, perhaps a member of staff or perhaps a, um, a, a care or family member of somebody who's a patient, um, we will uh, go in and, and look at what's going on. And we did exactly that actually at Walton Hall. So we, we have that power. But, but again, it's, it's a question of where you've got occasional harm being committed or you've got individuals who are actively seeking to, to thwart our regulation. That can be an incredibly difficult environment in which to in which to try and regulate. I think that was one of the most shocking things about the Panorama program that people were talking about how mm. to avoid your your mm. regulation. Mm. Yeah, which you know that can't be. That's not impressive, and it adds to the difficulty mm. in which you have to operate. It does, and and I think when you look at what what we've done subsequently, we have. Um, we, we've done a, a, an inspection of the provider themselves and looked at their governance structures and, and what you what you saw. I mean, sometimes we are criticised for being overly interested in, in, in governance and the way organisations are run and overly interested in leadership. 
that the reality I think is that is that a you know well run a really well run organization with with clear solid governance has has fewer problems I yeah. think I think you know that this whole issue of how important is leadership is something which I think we think is we've always thought is important but I think we're increasingly of the view that you know if leaders are setting the right tone of voice in the organization the chance of of recruiting and retaining individuals who who are who are going to do uh, bad things is, is much reduced and, and I think that feels to me like something is something we need to continue to do and it's a really important part of what we do even if it isn't necessarily always welcomed I think by providers and I think one of the issues about this is that you're not on your own you know it's not all your responsibility mm. I mean they're more regulators in the health service than I've had hot dinners they're, you know we're not short of regulators mm. But in order for it to be effective, it all has to be joined up mm. and organizations have to share mm. intelligence. So mm. it's no good just, just talking about one body. It's, it's, it's a whole mm. machine that has mm. to work together. And I don't think we've been terribly good at that. Yes and no. I, th I think there are st there's definitely work to do around in, on that. But I do think that the relationships that we've, that we've all built with each other uh, over a period of years are actually relatively effective. Mm. There are still times and places when things don't don't work out. I think I think the issue possibly is from a public point of view is that if if you're a member of the public and a thing happens to you, you're not terribly interested in whether this is the General Medical Council or the yeah. Nursing Committee or CQC or whatever. And, and I think we sometimes find that people will just will complain to us and we'll say that's very interesting, but it isn't really us. It's someone else and someone else. And, and I think that's when the public can get frustrated and ultimately, I, I guess, Rob, end up with you where we've not been able to help them or we've not been able to help them on all of what's been said because we don't do investigations um, of, of individual complaints. But people sometimes think that we should. So I think there's something about the way the different regulators have been set up, which probably some, sometimes doesn't, does, doesn't help us. But I think, I think we, we have got relationships now that if, if somebody complains to one of the other regulators then and, and they think the issue is for us, they'll in some cases warm transfer that person just if they're on the phone they'll actually just directly transfer into our contact center yeah. and we can pick it up and help them so so I think I think we're getting better but I'd, I'd agree I think you know as ever are we delivering the absolutely slickest service for the public in the round as a collective of regulators probably not yet okay can we just talk a little bit about our relationship as mm. uh, as two different institutions you're a regulator I'm I'm not a regulator mm. I'm an ombudsman mm. Do you think it's there, there's a tension in our relationship because we have to do two things? We have to hold you to account as a body and jurisdiction, mm. but we also have to work together yeah. to drive improvements. Mm. Do you, do you, I think it's possible to work that, but do you think that is the case? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, there have been times when we've when we've not not had the same point of view on a, on a particular topic, but equally, I think I think we've got a professional relationship and I think you know we can't we can't look each other in the eye and demand high standards of integrity if we're going to sort of frankly let personal or you know personal debate personal disputes get in the way so I think I, I think if, if I look at the you know that if you like the the net position I think there's we, we've done a lot more together than than we've disagreed on and certainly you know in my within my organization we will we will if we do start to get into a conversation around somewhere something where we might disagree then we, we will look internally and say well okay what's the PHSO's perspective on this how can we try and see if we can you know try and see that other perspective um, so I think 
And I think this probably also applies to you know some of the other regulators, GMC, NMC are, are another another group that we work closely with, and, and I guess they're going to have a particular perspective on on individuals, whereas we tend to deal with providers. So. I think it is possible to, 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 to work in a, in a professional way because I think we do all share a set of values. That, that value of integrity that runs through this, like a stick of rock through all of us, I think, is, is what makes regulation in this country work. And I think when you talk to people overseas, I think you often find that they're, they're pretty jealous of, of that, that collective regulation that mm. we're able to deliver. I mean, we, we have to demonstrate that uh, integrity through transparency. Yeah. Mm. But my view would be that if there wasn't tension, then people would accuse us of having a cosy relationship yeah. in which yeah. there wasn't that proper accountability. Mm. So I don't see tension being being a problem. You publish each year a, a state of care report uh, that highlights the strengths and challenges of the quality of health and social care. Where, where are we at the moment? You've mm. published a a big report. Yeah, I mean, we we published our st uh, state of care report uh, normally about October time, and and I I think when you look at the performance of individual providers, what we see is this year the number of uh, outstanding goods requires improvement, inadequate providers in each sector is broadly the same as it was last year. So. At a provider level, one would say well, that's quite a quite a good story, and that's quite a good story from the point of view of of what we know is significantly increased demand in a number of sectors. However, I think I think the the big issue is this issue of access. This this issue that people are saying they can't necessarily get access to the type of care that they need when they need it, and that's that's about whether they can access primary medical services uh, when they need it uh, and that that's not just about getting a gp's appointment that that's about things like you know if you've got a if you've got a young child and you need you need cam services you know, adult adolescent mental health services and you can't get an appointment for a number of months and then months and months and months go by and then suddenly you find yourself in a and e with your, with a young child with you know with your son or daughter trying to take their own life uh, and and that that, that that's that's a story which gets repeated again again and again you know, we talk a lot about the pressures on emergency departments at the moment, and, and they are well talked about and well documented. But actually, when you go and when you go and stand in an, an emergency department, it becomes very clear very quickly that a number of things are going on. That the, the, the relationship with local primary primary care is not is not as good as it could be, mm. and that people are not flowing through the hospital fast enough because there there are people who are stranded in hospital because mm. of a lack of of social care locally. So that, that issue of, of how people move through a system of health and social care is, is, is a really important issue. So we, we talked about that a lot in, social, in State of Care this year. And, and the other, I think, linked point we particularly focused in on was, was mental health, learning disabilities and autism, where, again, that lack of services in that community space meant that people who are living at home, perhaps, often with families that are really struggling just, just, just to keep things together, uh, are finding that the services they previously relied on, things like respite care, for example, are being cut back. And the consequence of that is that the person then goes from living at home to being in some kind of closed environment. And then they become stranded there and they can't, they can't get out. And, and, and they, they, they actually deteriorate rather than improve. So that, that they, these environments are described as hospitals. The expectation is they're therapeutic and, and people are just not getting the benefit of that. So I, I think, and, and when you, and, unpack that what you see is is issues around staffing 
issues around training where people are because if you can't recruit staff you tend to recruit staff and then not invest enough time in training them which means people are not in these quite difficult environments mm. and not able to perform at the levels that, that we would expect so I think I think that, that sort of combination of let's look at the system where, other issues in the system why are there issues in the system it, 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 it's largely about staffing and, and, and then link point is training and the final point I think is just this long term uh, sustainable funding solution for social care I think I think we've been around around this topic a number of times the last couple of years we've been really very pointed about that because we think that the amount it, it is clear to us the amount of money in, in, in social care in particular is having a really detrimental effect on the sector's ability to perform uh, and that in turn means that people are are, are are being stuck in primary medical services and 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 in hospitals and, and unless and unless there is more money going into social care then the money the extra money that's going into the NHS at the moment is is, is going to be if you like wasted on on looking after people who who, uh, who shouldn't really be there we're, we're just about to produce a report on people who receive mental health care and one of the difficulties about that is that the very people who who have the need are the most reluctant or unable to complain. My counterparts in other countries have the right of own initiative to be able to go and look at those mm. issues. So in Ireland, in Finland and so on, abuses have been spotted about people who haven't been able to complain themselves. I don't have that power, mm. so I can't assist your organization in in identifying things like that mm. which i think is a, a a strategic weakness but just finishing this off feedback and listening is obviously mm. critical how, how do you as a, a leader encourage your organization to to make that a high priority mm. I, I think in, in a number of ways if you look at the way that we are structured we have a, a pretty big intelligence team and we we create uh, data packs which support our individual inspectors as they go out on inspection. So, so we'll start off by saying, what's the shape and size of this organization? What are the issues? What, what, what do we think from a, just looking at the data alone? What do we think some of the issues are? We also have a, a, a large contact center in, in Newcastle so people can, can telephone us and, and, and talk to us about their experience of care, whether that's a member of staff, whether that's a, uh, a, a patient or a, or a carer. Um, and and what we do is is bring all of that together. So when inspectors walk through the door of a provider, they they are they, they are starting to know where to look. And, and the fact that we when we go on site, you know, what we do is we make ourselves visible. So we we sort of and a lot of the things that are often that often people talk to us about are, are members of staff or, or patients or, or relatives who just come and talk to us about what they've seen. And, and in some cases, you know, we've had. You know, I was talking to one of our inspectors the other day, so she was on site and, and one of the sisters in A&E just came to her and just started crying and just mm. said, look, I've just, I'm completely overwhelmed by this. You know, I'm so glad you're here. You know, I, I, I don't know what to do. And so sometimes people see CQC as, a, as an escape valve almost mm. to sort of say, well, look, you know, these are what we think the problems are. And we can then take that and present them to, to management and leadership teams in a, in a, in a constructive way. And, and so, so there's, there's 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 all of all of that. Um, we just we've just launched our give give feedback on care service as well, which is a um, it's an online service that we've always been at, you've always been able to sort of let us know using an online form as to as to how you th what you think about care, but it was never particularly well used. But we we spent some time uh, with our experts by experience and with and with members of the public doing a lot of really 
in-depth analysis of how people would use the internet to mm. raise raise complaints mm. and concerns and we've created a, a new service and, and you know one would argue at its simplest it's an online form you fill it in but actually it's been designed in a particular way to make it as easy as possible to fill in and take people through a series of steps to, to give them some reassurance as they go that, that we'll take the information they're giving us and treat it with respect and, and if they want to stay anonymous they can if they want, to, want us to call them back and talk a bit more detail about what they're telling us they can and, and the impact that's had has been phenomenal in terms of the, of the, the number of extra people have, have completed the transaction and come through. So I'm expecting that plus plus we're, we're looking to introduce some chat functionality as well so that so that particularly younger people or, or people who don't necessarily feel particularly confident speaking to somebody may may use chat functionality or, or, or whatever so I think what we're trying to do is create a number of channels into yeah. our organization and then you know then then overlay that with the relationships we have with other other regulators um, and of course with you to say well actually are we the best person to, to take this complaint in the round uh, and do some do something with it and sometimes these things are not necessarily complaints in the orthodox sense mm -hmm. they might just be bits of feedback and then when we start to un unpick a little bit and we add it to three or four other things that we know um, then that might give us a sense of of of, uh, of something really important going on we're coming towards the end i'd like to keep you here much longer but you're a busy man one of the things we're working on together is the complaint standards framework, which uh, your organization has been very constructive in helping to push along so that for the NHS, we get one basic standard of uh, excellence in complaints handling. Do you agree this is an important initiative? Oh, very much so. I, I think I think what we want to do is try with, with, the, with the framework is try and give people a mechanism that that has a series of logical steps to it because you know if i reflect on speaking to my, my own parents and if they don't have a good a good experience i say to my mum, well why don't you complain oh no we couldn't possibly complain that would be very bad and and i know from my own experience of of having given feedback to to to, to providers that people the providers really value this but but their their complaint process may appear to be a bit clunky yeah and a bit confrontational. And I think what we're trying to do with the complaint standard, we, 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 you know, what we're trying to do together with that is to try and get a sense of, almost a sense of logical escalation so that people can give sensible feedback. That sensible feedback can lead to something changing and some learning and some improvement going on. Um, and everybody feeling, you know, the public feeling that that's a logical and sensible thing to do rather than this sense of, oh no, I couldn't possibly complain. And yet you know very well that if you were in a supermarket and you've got some, you know, got something that wasn't entirely right, you would go and talk to the, the, the person on the desk or, and, and, and in a sensible adult way, and something would be done about it. Whereas yeah. people don't feel they can do that in health and social care, and I'd really like them to be able to do that. Well, we're currently seeking public feedback on the complaint standard framework and Listeners can visit www.ombudsman.org.uk stroke CSF uh, to have their say in the way you've just described and that will uh, push us along. So that's, that's good to hear. Last question, Ian. We both work in the oversight realm. We both have lots of good people as colleagues, many recent graduates. What would be your advice as a an experienced regulator to people coming into either the regulatory or the ombuds profession. That's an interesting one. I think I think one of them is probably it's probably advice to most I guess in most jobs, which is be curious. I think one of the things that that 
we are certainly very interested in at the moment is how one regulates innovation because things are happening there's an aggregation of providers there's systems there's digital services there's all sorts of stuff and i think if you don't get into the habit of being curious really early on in your career then you find your your career can 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 stall so i, I think you know it, it's advice for everybody really which is the more curious you are the more interested in what's going on the, the the better and i think therefore the more effective we can be as a regulator because i think we've got to be able to to regulate in this new digital fast paced joined up sort of way uh, and curiosity is really the only way we can uh, we, we, we can be effective at that so you heard it here first from ian trenholm be curious so that we can aggregate innovation that's great uh, it's been an absolute pleasure thank you very much indeed ian we appreciate it thanks rob cheers Thank you for listening to Radio Ombudsman. We would love to know what you think, so please leave a review or comment. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe to future episodes.